Last week, we looked at Zachariah as we started this questioning Christmas series. And we looked at his question, this idea of how can I know? And uh, he had this moment of doubt. And because of that, he was made to live in silence until his son, John the Baptist's birth. Now, a question I was asked later, whether it was in the hallways or at home or just throughout the week, was um, why was Zachariah punished for his doubt when we looked at some of the other people from Scripture and it didn't seem like there was any kind of consequences for them? And I said, that's a great question that I don't have the answer for. Like, there's possibilities, like maybe it's because there was more of a discussion that happened in that room with the angel that we don't know. Maybe God wanted it for the purpose of a sign. You know what, if someone tells you something that happened once, you may remember it, but if you're seeing someone not speak for nine months, you're continually reminded of that vision that he saw to when then John was born, you knew that something special was going to happen. I'm not exactly sure. But I do know that it was only temporary for Zechariah, and we also saw that he praised God throughout it all. And so I'm not sure. But today we're going to look at Mary. And so if you have your Bibles or your device, you can open up to Luke chapter 1. All right, so that's where we're going to be. And we're starting in verse 26. Now the events that we're looking at today are a little more well-known than the, week, than the uh, events of last week. Like for quite a few people, the Christmas story begins here. You see, these individuals are the centralized figures. And when the story of Christmas is explained, almost always are these details included. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 1 and read verse 26 and 27. It says this, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so as we jump into that, like right off the bat, it says in the sixth month. And you might go, in the sixth month of what? Like some of your translations will actually say it, but the sixth month it's referring to is of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Like that's why even the events that we looked at last week are important. It helps us to see the timeline of all of this. So six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel appears to Mary. So Gabriel, it's the exact same angel that we looked at last week. The situation is similar, yet different. Like it's different because now he's in Nazareth instead of Jerusalem. Now he's talking to a young girl instead of an older man. But the message is still very similar, that you're going to have a special baby. All right, so that's what he proclaims. And then we meet Mary, like right off the bat, it just tells us Mary. And it calls her a virgin twice, like two times within verse 27. It makes sure that we know that she's a virgin. We see that she is pledged to be married to Joseph. And we see that he lives in the line of David. And so we'll look at some of that here in a bit. But Mark Moore, in his Chronological Life of Christ book, he gives this information for us to kind of help understand the background. He said, shortly after a girl hits her teens, she would be betrothed, that is, engaged. And the parents of the prospective couple would make the arrangements and, in fact, choose the partner. Like once a young man saved a dowry, he would choose a mediator, which would possibly be a friend. The mediator would go with the young man's parents to the house of the prospective bride. And her parents would meet them and offer a drink. The party would refuse the drink until the price of the dowry had been set and consent of the bride was given. Her parents would then choose a mediator for their side and the negotiations would begin. Once the matter was settled, refreshments were brought out and everyone celebrated the agreement. 
Betrothal would probably last no longer than a year before the wedding, and this contract was legally binding and could only be broken by death or divorce. And so according to Jewish custom, Mary was probably about 15 years old. And so I tell you all that because that's the background for what has been going on in Mary's life up to this point. And again, we'll dive deeper into some of that information here in a moment. But understand this, like up to this moment, when Gabriel shows up, her life has been pretty normal. All right, so let's keep reading in verses 28 to 33. It says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so Gabriel begins his message to Mary saying, greetings, you're highly favored, God is with you. But again, no matter how a conversation begins with an angel, like you're probably somewhat frightened. And so the text tells us that Mary is troubled. And that Greek word is only found here in the New Testament, like no other spot. And so what you need to understand is that basically she was having some pretty intense feelings at this moment. It wasn't just, hey, this is cool, an angel who's telling me I'm favored with God. That's not what's going on here. But the angel continues and he says, don't be afraid. He says, you're going to be with child, you're going to have a son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus. Jesus, that name literally means the Lord saves or Jehovah saves. Now, as we're talking about names, I should probably tell you just in case you didn't know, because again, sometimes the way we talk, you might not know that Christ is actually not Jesus's last name. Like sometimes people just think that, okay, the way we talk in our culture and Jesus Christ, but it's actually a title. It's the Greek equivalent to the word Messiah, and both mean this idea of the anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one, this Messiah. He was the one the Jews had been waiting for for so long, and they were ready for him to come and rescue them. And so this message from the angel continues, and it says, the son that you're going to have, he's going to be great says he's called the son of the most high, which is an exalted title of God. It says he's going to have the throne of his father, David. He's going to be in this royal lineage of all the Jews. Like you can look back and see this history. It says he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, symbolizing all of Israel. Like your son is going to be it and his kingdom will never end. Last week we looked at Zechariah and he was told that his son was going to prepare the way for the Lord. And Mary's told that her son will be the Lord. And just like Zechariah, she has a question. And again, we don't have the voice tone. We don't have the facial expressions. We don't have the body language, but we do have the wording. And so in verse 34, we read this. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Like, how will this be since I am a virgin? Back in verse 27, we saw the word virgin twice, all right? Two times within that verse. And some people will argue that they mistranslated that word, that it shouldn't be virgin, because the word can also be translated young woman or young maiden. And so some people will try to tell you that's the way that it should be translated instead of virgin. But I will tell you, most of those people simply don't want to believe in a virgin birth. The problem with that theory 
that it should just be a young woman is here in verse 34. Our English says, Mary says, how can this be because I am a virgin? In the Greek, it says, how can this be since I have never known a man? Like she would not say those words if the word was simply supposed to be translated young woman. So you can be confident that, that Mary was a virgin. Now, we're going to talk about that virgin birth here in a few moments. But for now, Mary's wondering kind of what this angel has said. Like, how is it going to happen because I'm a virgin? And so then the angel keeps talking in verses 35 through 37. It says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And so the answer to Mary's question, how's this going to happen, is that God is going to make it happen. Like the Holy Spirit will come on you. Now as I say that, one struggle that some people have is picturing God being physical with Mary to make this happen. Like some people hear those wording and just think that there's no way the virgin birth can be true because God wouldn't do that. However, in the Old Testament, whenever you hear this phrase, the Holy Spirit coming on someone, it has nothing to do with anything physical. It always refers to this idea of Holy Spirit empowerment. In fact, even if you were to go over to the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, in Luke 1.8, when Jesus is about to go back up into heaven, he says these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Again, there is nothing physical whatsoever. It's all this idea of Holy Spirit empowerment. So she asks this question, like, how will this happen? And the answer is that God's going to make it happen. And Mary, if that seems really big to you, which I'm sure if any of us were in that state, like, that would be a pretty big message. He says, here's a sign for encouragement. That Elizabeth, who you know, your relative who is old and has been been barren, is now six months pregnant. He says, nothing impossible with God. And so then we just have Mary's response, really simple in verse 38. It says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. She says, I am God's servant. Essentially, she's saying, your will be done. Like even knowing that people are going to be looking at her, even knowing there are no assurances of how Joseph is going to respond, like will he believe her? Will he divorce her? Will he have her killed for being unfaithful? Mary gives this response of faith. She has a humble obedience simply saying, I will serve you. Now, I do need to stop just for a second. As we talk about Mary, sometimes there are two extremes that people take when we look at her. The first is beginning to worship her. Like God never intended for us to elevate her to some worship status. The other side is just kind of pushing her to the side and neglecting her, like thinking she didn't have an important role. Neither is what God desires. I mean, think about this. God chose her to be the mother of the Son of God. What an honor. What a responsibility. And, you know, thinking about that, God doesn't call us to a task that he's not going to prepare us to perform. So he's with Mary, helping her to be the mother of the Son of God. But she was a faithful servant that we can learn from, but not someone that we should worship. So Mary. Now, I also now want to look at this idea of the virgin birth. All right, C.S. Lewis considered the miracle of the virgin birth to be that miracle which for some reason proves hardest of all the modern minds to be able to accept. 
or Millard Erickson said, next to the resurrection, the most debated and controversial event in Jesus' life is the virgin birth. There's a man named J. Warner Wallace who was a detective, and he did not believe in Christ, that Jesus was the Son of God until he was 35. And since then, he writes and he speaks about the truth of Jesus using all the tools that he has come to know by being a detective. And some things are pretty deep, but he wrote this article entitled, Five Reasons You Can Trust the Story of Christmas is True. And for those five reasons in that article, deal with the virgin birth. So let me just read what he says. Reason number one. The supernatural nature of the virgin conception shouldn't disqualify it. Like the supernatural shouldn't just say, okay, this can't be real. It says, when I began to investigate the virgin conception, I was actually investigating my own philosophical naturalism. I was, in essence, asking the following questions. Is the natural world all that exists? Is there anything beyond the physical, material world that we measure with our five senses? Are supernatural events possible or even reasonable? In asking these questions, I was putting naturalism to the test. It would have been unfair, therefore, to begin by presupposing nothing supernatural could ever exist or occur. If we want to be fair about assessing the virgin conception or any other supernatural aspect of the nativity story, we cannot exclude the very possibility of the supernatural in the first place. Our presupposition against the supernatural would unfairly taint our examination of the claim. The second thing that he says is the claim of the virgin conception appears incredibly early in Christian history. So that's why this is why it matters. It's always easier to tell a lie once everyone who was alive to know the difference has already died. But if you're going to make a claim early in an area where people are still available to debunk your claim, be prepared to have some difficult times getting away with misrepresentations. But the virgin conception of Jesus was one of the earliest claims in Christian history. The students of the gospel author cited the virgin conception as true claims about Jesus. In fact, Ignatius, who was the student of John, and John was an apostle who didn't even include the birth of Jesus in his gospel, he wrote about the virgin birth in his early writings to the local churches. Other church leaders repeated the claim through the earliest years of the church, and the doctrine also appears in the most ancient church creeds, so even non-canonical documents include the virgin conception of Jesus. He says, you know what? This came about very, very early in the belief of the church. He said reason number four, because remember, number three has nothing to do with the virgin birth. Number four is this. The virgin conception was not an invention of the early Christians. He said some critics of the virgin conception argue that the earliest Christian authors, they inserted it in an effort to give Jesus a heroic birth along with all the other Old Testament heroes. But not every Jewish hero from the Old Testament had an unusual birth story. Like think about Joshua, David, or Solomon. Those are some of the most obvious examples of powerful Old Testament heroes with birth stories that were less than supernatural. In addition, there is no other character from the Old Testament who was born of a virgin through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit. The characteristic of Jesus' conception is unique to Jesus and it follows no pre-existing Old Testament pattern. So they didn't write it just to match it up with the Old Testament. Here's his last argument. He says the virgin conception wasn't borrowed from another source. See, sometimes skeptics will attempt to discredit the virgin conception of Jesus by claiming that it was borrowed from pagan uh, mythology, such as those of Mithras or Horus. 
but any fair examination of pagan mythological birth narratives reveals the dramatic differences between the virgin conception of Jesus and the stories about the supernatural emergence of mythological gods. He said, while borrowing may have occurred between belief systems, the weak resemblances between the biblical account and the pagan mythologies are far more likely the result of Judeo-Christian influence rather than contamination from a pagan source. He said, it's irrational to believe that early Jewish readers of the Gospels would embrace any part of paganism in the story of Jesus' conception as continuous with the Jewish narrative from the Old Testament. He said, in addition, early Christian converts were repeatedly called to a new life in Christ. They were uh, told that they were merely travelers passing through this mortal world. They were called to live a life that was free of worldly influence, and they were told to reject foolish philosophies and stories of men. So this group, in particular, would be the last to turn to pre-existing pagan stories and superstitions. Now, I don't know if all that I just read there like went right over your head going, man, there's a lot of deep things right there. But here's how he finishes his article. He says that if there uh, exists a supernatural being capable of bringing all space, time, and matter into existence from nothing, then such a being could certainly accomplish the virgin conception of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, or any other lesser miracles described in the pages of the New Testament. He said, in addition, there is no historically, textually, or philosophically necessary reason to reject the claims of the New Testament authors. He says, if you are a Christian this Christmas season, celebrate the birth of Jesus with confidence and certainty. The virgin conception is not a fanciful fairy tale. It is a true story. I was reading Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christmas, and in it there's a little blurb from William Lane Craig who said, I thought the virgin birth was absurd. He said, for the virgin birth to be true, a Y chromosome had to be created out of nothing in Mary's ovum because Mary didn't possess the genetic material to produce a male child. And yet even with his struggle in this area, he chose to become a Christian just because of all the other evidence. Like he could not push it away. So he chose to do that. Eventually, Craig has become an expert in the scientific evidence for a creator, and he since said these words, if I really do believe in a God who created the universe, then for him to create a Y chromosome would be child's play. You know what Mark Moore wrote? The bottom line is, if God was able to create life in Eden, he can create life in a womb. The virgin birth. It doesn't have to be something that is so far-fetched. Like, think about this. Luke is the author who included this in his gospel. Luke was a physician. He would not have put this in there if it was not true. He would not have accepted this lightly. Or even going back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 prophesied this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You know, Dr. William Evans preached a sermon at his son's church that the people will never forget. You see, he began to speak on the virgin birth, and all were amazed when he raised up his Bible and he tore out the pages that narrate the birth of Jesus. Like, as tattered scraps floated down towards the congregation, he shouted, If we can't believe the virgin birth, then let's tear it out of the Bible. And then he drove home his point, and he tore out the resurrection chapters. 
and then the miracle narratives, and then anything conveying supernatural, and the floor was littered with mutilated pages. And finally, with immense drama, he held up the only remaining portion, and he said, and then all we have left is this, the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, and that has no authority for me if a divine Christ doesn't preach it. You know what? As we're talking about this idea of virgin birth, there's a lot of you in here watching online that have never second-guessed it. You're like, the Bible says it, so that's what happened, and you completely believe that. Like, you don't need to hear all these other arguments to kind of back it up. But others of you maybe do struggle with that. Like, and if you won't ever question the virgin birth, or even right now, I think you need to know that it doesn't mean you can't be a Christian, right? I mean, even William Lane Craig was that way at first. But let me ask you this question in all seriousness. Why is it that you don't believe in the virgin birth? Why is it? Like, is it because it doesn't make sense to you? Or is it because this miracle maybe doesn't seem like some of the others? Or maybe it feels like someone just made it up? Or maybe it's just this, that that's not the way you would have done it if you were God. You see, God wants us to be able to live this life of freedom, and not just someday in heaven, but right now. But when you and I restrict, or you and I restrict his blessings and his influence in our lives when we choose not to believe what he said, when we choose to think that maybe we're smarter or we know a better way. But since we know that all of God's word is inspired by him, we can live confidently on that foundation. Which then brings me to actually a bigger question than just focusing on the virgin birth. You see, Mary asked Gabriel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And after explaining some things, the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. Now, I would doubt that any of us in here or watching online right now have ever asked the question to God, how will this be since I am a virgin? Like, I would doubt, at least honestly, that would be any of our questions that we've ever asked God. But the first part of that question, the idea of how will this be, well, that's a completely different story. Like, I'm sure a lot of us have asked a question fairly similar to that. Now, in some ways, this does sound similar to Zachariah's question last week of how can I be sure of this? Except this time, there is no sense of me involved in this question whatsoever. Like, Mary wants to know how this amazing thing is going to happen. Like this thing that God is doing in her, this thing that she is not in control of, how can this be? Have you ever felt God leading you to take a step of faith? Like in any area, like you've felt him and you know that he wants you to do something. Like maybe it's changing a job. Maybe it's choosing not to retaliate to something that was said to you. Maybe it's letting a coworker take the lead Maybe it's sitting with that one kid at lunch that no one else chooses to. Maybe it's trusting God through a sickness or making a tough decision regarding your kids. Maybe it's praying before meals in public or going on a mission trip or teaching a, ch uh, a children's Sunday school class. Maybe you have to step out in faith by speaking to a friend about Jesus or giving to the church or joining a life group or doing something so big that you know there is no way it's going to happen unless God is behind it. And maybe whatever that step of faith that you're feeling nudged to do, you begin to ask this question, but how will it be? Like, God, how are you going to do this? How is this going to turn out? Will it be successful? 
Because like from where I sit, this task seems pretty insurmountable. Or at least it's like really scary because I'm not in charge. Like maybe you've been there. And if that's you, might I simply tell you the words of Gabriel, that nothing is impossible with God. For a God who created everything out of nothing, who brought his people through the Red Sea, who opens up the ground to swallow people who opposed him, who took care of his people while they wandered in the desert for 40 years, who won a battle by having his army march around the city, who spoke through a donkey to get someone's attention, who provides a son to a woman who prays year after year after year at the temple, who uses a young boy with a rock and a slingshot to take out a decorated soldier, who withholds rain from three years from the land until he causes it to rain again, who brings people back to life, who causes individuals not to be burned up in a fire, who rescues from the mouths of lions, who uses a big fish to transport a prophet, who comes to earth as a man, who causes a virgin to give birth, who performs miracles right in front of crowds, who raises from the dead three days later and then promises that everyone who believes in him will live forever. Nothing is impossible with him. And when you are in that moment going, God, how will this be? Let me encourage you that you serve the Almighty, and He is able. I can't stand up here and tell you exactly how He's going to do it. I can't tell you the step-by-step of what He's going to do, but I do know the God that we serve. And if He wants something done, He's going to do it. And He's not afraid to use anyone who's willing to be used by Him. You don't have to have this amazing resume or unbelievable skills. You don't have to be at the top of your class or the star player. Mary wasn't. All you need to do is have a humble obedience, and God can do amazing things, even if you're not 100% sure of what those things will be, because it's not about you. It's about him. Mary asks this question, like, how can it be? And then she replied, I am your servant. It doesn't mean that she didn't walk away from that conversation without any fears, and yet her faith guided her during this uncertainty. You see, the angel's message and her understanding of who God is was enough for her. So is your understanding of God enough to help you stand in times of uncertainty? Can you take those steps of faith to be able to follow and serve after him even when you can't see how it's going to work out or even when you're not the one in control. Like if you know that you need to obey, but man, it's hard. Instead of me standing up here giving you three or four things to do, could I encourage you with this to simply take a step back and spend some time remembering how big the God we serve is. Simply stand in awe of him. How big is your God? Is he able to handle whatever situation you're going through? And if so, let that inspire you to take that one step of faith at a time. And in doing so, you then get to watch how God's going to work. God, he used a virgin to bring a son into the world. And then that son died on a cross to bring you and I forgiveness, to bring us freedom, to bring us new life. 
man, if you've never accepted that forgiveness or that new life, and you want to experience that freedom, man, I want you to understand that it is a free gift. The price has already been paid. We just have to accept it. And so if you want to do that today, in just a moment, we're going to be singing a song, and I would encourage you to go back to the prayer room and find out what does this mean. Later on today, we'll have Baptism Sunday from 1 to 2. If today's the day that you want to make that decision, we're here to help you with that. And for so many of us who have already made that decision and we're living for Him, may we share the good news of Jesus and the new life that He gives us to other people. Like this Christmas season, it sets it up so nicely to be able to share the truth that God came to earth as a man to save us all. That is good news. Or actually, it's great news. And if you're nervous about it, step out in faith during uncertainty and let God use you because we serve an almighty God. If you have a decision to make or you want prayer, I encourage you to go to the prayer room. For the rest of us, let us give him praise. Let's stand and sing.